All right, we'll, we'll transition over to the sermon now, Kristen, so we can flip over to that side slide. I'm losing my voice as well, so if you hear some cracks throughout the sermon, it's probably not because I'm getting emotional, but because I'm losing my voice, just as a heads up. And because Mike does an incredible job as a sound guy, so it's definitely not him who's making my voice crack through the mic, it's just me. Heads up about that. Let me, uh, let me pray for the sermon before we get into it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, for the chance that we have to gather as the people of God. Lord, my, my soul needed to sing the truth of those songs. I needed to be reminded that I'm not alone, that I am a son of the living God. I needed to be reminded that, that you have spoken to me from the cross, that you are on my side. I needed to be reminded this morning to behold you, our great and glorious king, because I've spent most of my week beholding other things. And so, Lord, I thank you for the opportunity this morning to gather. I thank you for the family of God among us. I thank you that we have a present, Father. You are here amongst us, Lord Jesus. I pray that you would meet each one of us where we're at this morning and lead us to where you desire us to be in your presence, where there are pleasures forevermore and fullness of joy. We pray these things in your precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. Well, the question that we're asking this morning is, why do we gather? It's a beautiful day out. Did you notice as he came this morning? A beautiful day. As, as I walked to church this morning, I saw a guy walking his dog, and I thought, why would anyone come sit in this building on this morning? It's like the last glimpse of summer that we have, and after a cold, rainy, gray week in the 50s already, it's like 80 today and sunny and beautiful. And so why are you here? Why do we gather as a church? And I think this is a really important question for us to engage, because the truth is even Christians debate this. Even Christians don't agree on why we gather. And non-Christians, they think we're foolish. They think we're wasting our time. And so are we wasting our time? Why, obviously you don't think you are, that's why you're here, but I think we still need to engage this question because many Christians do think it's unnecessary to gather. That they're, they're obviously not the ones who are here right now, or maybe some of you are here, uh, uh, who knows why you're here, you, feel, you felt guilted into coming to church, or you have this kind of guilty conscience from your upbringing or from religious church tradition that says, well, to be a good Christian, I better go to church, I gotta, I gotta do that thing. But the reality is Christians don't even agree on this. Some think it's unnecessary to gather. I can, I can worship God from the golf course. I don't know how many times I've heard people say that. I can worship God on my fishing boat. I can have church in my living room with my closest friends who actually know me. That's actually more like church. When I gather, you know, if I go to a church building, it's among these people that I don't know that well. They don't know my struggles. They're singing songs. Half of them are hypocritical and judgmental. I can do church in my house. And then other Christians, they're totally convinced that it's necessary to gather with the people of God, to, to, to leave their homes, to leave the golf course, to leave the fishing boat, to leave the coffee shop or the bar and come to a place of worship. They're convinced that it's necessary, but many people couldn't articulate why. In fact, a lot of the people that I talk with about who, who, who come to church, they, they do it out of this religious upbringing or a sense of guilt, that that's what you need to do to be a good Christian. I, I want to keep God happy with me. 
I want to try and outweigh my bad deeds with good deeds. And and a piece of that is coming to church and and giving tithes and offerings and finding ways to serve. And so Christians even collide on these things. We don't have a clear idea of why we're getting out of bed on a Sunday morning and why we're gathering or why we're leaving our own house on a Thursday night after work, after a busy week work with kids, and we're going to somebody else's house to study the Bible when I could just stay home and podcast a great sermon. Or listen to the best worship bands online. Why do we do this? I think a lot of times we forget our reason why. Why do we gather? And it's harmful to our soul. When we forget our why, it confuses us. It distracts us. It's harmful to our soul. But it's also, it's also incredibly harmful for the non-believing world around us. The, re- the reality is within a 83,000, within a three-mile radius of Park Community Church, there's 83,000 people, based off of national averages, who have no meaningful connection to a local church. And I, th- I think that number is, in fact, too low. I'm convinced, as I've studied our area, that there's more than 83,000 people within three miles of this building who have no connection to the church. They think we're wasting our time. They have questions about it. And a lot of this is because of the church of Jesus Christ forgets her why. We've failed to articulate why we gather, or we've failed to give a glorious picture of who God is and what happens when we gather and what the different spaces of our gathering are and why they exist. In fact, some national surveys recently have found that 87% of people who don't attend a church on a Sunday morning think Christians are judgmental. And 85% of people who don't attend a church on a Sunday morning think that Christians are hypocritical. So almost 90% on both marks, judgmental and hypocritical. Why would I go to that place? Why would I go and gather with those people who are judgmental and hypocritical? If you think back a couple years ago, there was one of the top songs on the radio by a guy named Hoosier. It's called Take Me to Church. And it's a facetious song. He's not actually saying in this top song, and it was, it was in countries around the world, not just the American radio, but countries around the world, this song rose to the top of the charts. Hoosier, Take Me to Church. Here's what he says, facetiously, sarcastically. Take me to church. I'll worship like a dog at the shrine of your lies. I'll tell you my sins so you can sharpen your knife. Offer me that deathless death. Good God, let me give you my life. And that, and that good God there isn't actually saying good God. He's saying, good God, why would I do that? It's sarcastic. See, see this is what many people who live around us think, that why would I go to church all that's going to happen there is, is I'm going to worship at the shrine of the lies. The, the priest or the pastor is going to stand up and tell a bunch of lies and they want me to worship. Or, or I'm going to confess my sins and somebody's going to cut me deep. I'm going to, I'm going to confess, I'm going to admit what I'm struggling with, what I'm going through, the, the darkness in my life and the darkness in my soul. And they're going to ask me to clean myself up. They're going to, they're going to ask me to do some kind of penance to, to, to fix my sin. They're, or they're just going to judge me even harder. And so this is what culture believes about our gatherings. I mean, there's a reason why this song became one of the top songs around the world for an entire year. And it's a catchy song. It has a catchy tune. But I think people connected with this, their experiences in many church buildings and with many church people was judgment, hypocrisy, confessing sin and feeling like they were cut deeper, not healed, but cut, wounded, judged. And I think this often happens from churches and people, God's people, 
when we forget our why. Why do we gather? Whether that's in a church building, whether that's in a home. We're going to talk about some of the size dynamics of gathering later on, but we have to get back to the question, why do we gather? That's the big question for us to look at this morning. Does, does that make sense? We want to rediscover a why. And so to do that, I'm going to look at four passages this morning with you. The first two are descriptive. They describe what gatherings in Scripture looked like. And then the last two from Hebrews are instructive. They instruct us to gather. So if you could open up to Psalm 149 with me. It's on page 526 in the Pew Bible. We'll start with Psalm 149 this morning. The first descriptive passage of a gathering in Scripture. The psalmist writes, Praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Let the godly exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the high praise of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them with judgment written. This is honor for all of his godly ones. Praise the Lord. So here's a descriptive passage of what happens when the church gathers, when God's people gather. And this is, there's many examples of this in the Old Testament. The Psalms are filled with them. And then the, the early parts of the Old Testament, these books are, are filled with Israel, God's people, God's called out, God's identified, God's covenant people gathering together to worship. See that word assembly there, that, that first word that's very important, and it's consistent in the Old Testament, that God would call his people, his followers, those who are covenanted to Yahweh, to assemble, to assemble, to sing, to dance, to praise. And, and this assembly actually worked as a judgment or a, a sign to the pagan nations around them that Yahweh is God. It was a call to them that, of Yahweh's goodness. And Yahweh's invitation for people to come and be in covenant relationship with him. But the point here is that they gathered. They left their individual homes. They left their individual spheres of influence. And they gathered as a large community. I think it's interesting here to note that they also worship God at Bedside Baptist. Have you heard that one before? Like some people are like, why would I go to church? I go to Bedside Baptist. That's when you stay home and stay in bed and sleep in. I love here that there's this picture of this corporate gathering and also this individual private gathering. So verse 1 says, the assembly of the godly. Those called out, the Israelites, the covenant people of God, have come together and they're rejoicing, they're singing, they're dancing, they're praising. It's this amazing opportunity for the people of God to gather. But he also says in verse 5, let the godly exalt in glory, let them sing for joy on their beds. See, that's Bedside Baptist. So, so there's this corporate call in Scripture in the Old Testament, and this is just one example. There's many passages and many verses calling God's covenant people to assemble, to gather, to extol the Lord in song and praise and, and come together in a festal gathering to, to rejoice and to eat and to sing and to dance and to, to hear from the prophets and to study the Torah. And then there's also this personal, private worship implication let the godly exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. 
one description in Scripture of a gathering. And this psalm is very descriptive of many of the other psalms where God's people are called to come to the temple, to come to the temple courts, to, to assemble as the community of God to worship and praise him. Let's look at the next example, the next description of gathering here in Acts chapter 2. That's on page 911 in the Pew Bible. So this is many years after Israel would gather. This is now after Jesus has come on the scene and he has walked among God's people. He has walked among both Jew and Gentile, calling people to come and follow him. He has been crucified for our sins in our place on the cross. He has overcome sin and death in the grave, and he has now ascended back into heaven, giving his followers the Holy Spirit. And now the church, the New Testament people of God, is being born. Here's how it describes the New Testament gathering. Remember the Old Testament gathering, this large group of people coming together to sing and to dance and to praise and to worship. Here's a New Testament description of their gatherings in Jerusalem right after Jesus' ascension. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. And they devoted themselves, the, the they there are the disciples and the apostles, and then actually jump up to verse 41. So those who received this word, Peter was preaching in an assembly of thousands of people. Peter, one of the disciples, stood up and, and he gave a sermon about who Jesus was and what Jesus has done. And this is kind of the end of the sermon here, verse 41. So those who received his word, those who heard the message, the, the sermon from Peter about Jesus, they were baptized. And there were added to that day 3,000 souls. So this is like the first mega church in the New Testament. And it's just a mega gathering. It's not a mega church. They're not an organized church family, church body. But, but it's this mega gathering of people who have come to Jerusalem for Passover and they've, they've heard the gospel. They've heard the good news of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done in their place on their behalf and they respond to it. And the church blows up from 120 people who were left over after Jesus ascended, the, the disciples and their families and a few other friends. And it blows up in that day to become a megachurch one day. That's a revival, right? How would you organize that from 100 people to 3,000 people in one day? That's explosive church growth. So this is the setting. This is what happens. And here, verse 42 through 47 goes on to describe how they gathered. Verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, it's important to remember this is descriptive of what happened in the first century in the early church. This isn't prescriptive for us to say this is how we have to do church now in 2019 in St. Louis Park. But it's descriptive of what God was doing in the early church, that there were all of these people gathered together in Jerusalem for the Passover, and many of them had become Christians. They had placed their faith in Jesus Christ, and, and they were trying to figure out what to do. Now what do we do? Do we all spread out and go back to our own communities? Do we stay here? and Do we, do we learn together? Do we become a church together? We need food. We need shelter. We need places to stay. And so they're figuring this out in Jerusalem. And, and the things to notice here is that they gathered they gathered, the church gathered. They both gathered corporately. It says that they went to the temple courts. 
There was this corporate gathering where, where they would come out of their own dwellings, out of their own spheres of influence, out of their own circles, and they would go to a place, a larger assembly, where they would gather together to learn and to seek God and to pray for one another, but then they would also scatter into smaller gatherings. All who believed were together and had all things in common. Verse 44, they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds that he had needs. See, see that tight community that was being built among them? Somehow they were in close enough relationship with one another where they knew each other's needs. And this wasn't organized from the top down. This wasn't Peter saying, I gave the sermon that 3,000 people responded to, so now I'm going to figure out how to organize the church so that everyone has what they need. No, this was this organic movement of the Spirit where the people were getting to know one another. They were gathering in the temple together, as it says in verse 46, but they were also scattered into homes, breaking bread together, praying for one another. They relationally knew one another's needs, and they were meeting one another's needs. And if a need came up, they would probably reach out to one of the apostles and say, hey, this, this widow is, is not able to pay her bills. She has no food. Can, can we get some of the money that people have brought together and can we redistribute it to her? Can we care for one another? We have a need over here in this community group. And, and is there any extra money to help fix this car for this person in our community group, in our home church, in this small fellowship, in this small gathering? And so they're figuring this out together. But the point is that they gathered. God's people in the Old Testament, they were called out of their private dwellings, out of their individual existence, into this corporate worship of God. And then right away here in the New Testament, as the church is being born, we, we see that people are being called out of their individual homes, their individual lives, their individual spheres of influence. They're, I mean, if we think about this through an American lens, this is hard, right? Because we're individualistic. We have fences, we have garages, we have boundaries. We don't really want people to get that close to us. We come to church for an hour and a half and we may or may not go deeper with anyone because I don't want people to really get to know me. And here we see in Scripture that God's people are called to gather. The New Testament church both gathered corporately, yes, to, to extol God and worship Him corporately through song, through preaching, through, through various activities, but then they were in each other's lives and homes daily. So those are the descriptions of the church. Now let's look at two instructions. Hebrews chapter 3. Look at Hebrews chapter 3 verses 12 through 14. The writer of Hebrews gives us a warning here with a reason why we ought to gather. <clears throat> it's on page 1002. He says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart. Any of you ever struggle with an unbelieving heart? Any of you ever struggle with, with evil thoughts? Guilty. Your pastor's guilty. It's okay for you to be guilty as well. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart. Guilty, 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 guilty. All guilty. Leading you to fall away from the living God. And So what he's saying here is that your evil, unbelieving heart, your fleshly heart, your unredeemed heart will lead you away from the living God. Verse 13, but exhort one another every day. Exhort, it means to encourage, to call out. Calling out encouragement in one another. Calling out the good things in one another. Calling out the gospel truth to one another. He says, exhort one another. When? On Sundays at 9 a.m.? What does it say? Every day. Not on Sundays at 9 or 10.45. He says, 
exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He's saying, we need a constant community. We need constant encouragement. I need people to speak into my life and say, Andrew, I see God doing this in your life. I see God doing this in your life. I see God doing this in your life. I see you going this way. I see you, I see you, I see you running away from God this way. I see you walking in fear rather than faith in this way. I, I need that. You need that. We need that. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. See, as we start to remove ourselves from Christian community, from both the corporate gathering, but also the smaller gathering, the, the intimate relationships with God's people, that's when the deceitfulness of sin starts to get a hold of us, and it starts to distort us, and it starts to prove that we don't have a living relationship with the living God. Verse 14, he says, for we share, for we share in Christ... If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, how do you know if you're saved? Well, well, you continue in community with God's people. This doesn't mean that there's, there's never a time and a place to, to find a different church or to change some community or if you move. And there, there's, a, there's a time and a place to think through that. The point here is that God's people are, are called to gather. They're instructed to gather because if we don't gather, we are we are vulnerable to the deceitfulness of sin to drag us away from God for all of eternity. Now let's look at the last instruction to gather, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the first part, but we'll come back to it at the end and kind of study it a little bit more at the end. I want to camp on the second part now, and we'll come back to the first part. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. That, that's an amazing call. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Any of you ever wavered? For God who promised is faithful. And here's how we get there, verse 24 and 25. And let us, to consider, how, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. How? Verse 25 answers that to us. By not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. But encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, again, the, 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 he, the writer of Hebrews here is warning us that if, if we forsake gathering with God's people, the deceitfulness of sin will, will get us. It will lure us away from God, our living hope. It will lure us away from Christ, the one in whom we found redemption. It will, it will, it will um, quench the Holy Spirit who gives us God's fruit and gifts. He says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. And Jesus gave us the great commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. How do you do that? Well, well it says that if we want to love and do good deeds, if we want to love God and neighbor, that it's necessary for us to be together that we have to gather. 
Don't neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another, exhort one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, see, you gather so that you can be encouraged in your faith. You gather so that you can be reminded of the gospel. You gather so that people can speak into your life what is true because the world and your, your own flesh will speak to you lies and you have an enemy who's seeking to, to destroy your life and so you need the people of God to remind you of what is good and right and true and noble and honorable and lovely we gather to stir one another up to love and good deeds. These are some of the reasons why we gather, but, but it still leaves some questions, right? Like, why here? Why now? Why not in my living room? What is a church? Just basically, okay, so we, we see the biblical call to gather. Well, can I just have some friends who love Jesus and, and call at my church and gather with them? It's way easier it's much easier to have two or three people who have the same faith that I have, same life stage, same hobbies, same interests, and to just say, well, if the Bible tells Christians to gather and encourage, these people, these three, encourage me, and I like them, so they're going to be my church. Doesn't that sound awesome? Like, wouldn't some of you want to just call church a few people who you really like and who are encouraging to you? I have, like, a list of about 17 people that, uh, it's more than that, it's most of you. But, but sometimes doesn't it sound nice to just have this like small little group of people who just think the way that you think, act the way that you act, and encourage you the way that you want to be encouraged? Can't that be the church? If scripture calls us to gather with God's people, and, and there's descriptions of a large gathering, but, but we don't see kind of a, we don't see a command. God doesn't command us to get together with a certain number of people. The biblical command, the biblical instruction is just to gather so what is the church? And can you have it at the bar or the coffee shop or in your living room or out on the golf course? Can you? Well, yeah, actually you can. The answer to that is yes. When you gather as community groups in homes, when you go out to lunch after the service today, you are the church gathered. The church is not the building. The church is the people. The church is not the facility. The church is the family. And so the answer to this question, what is the church? Well, it's the people of God gathered. So yes, when you go to the bar, when you go to the coffee shop, when you go to the golf course, if you're with some other Christians, when you're in your living room having a Bible study or a prayer session, you are the church gathered. Is that enough? Can you just skip this on your beautiful Sunday morning? Could you go walk your dog? Go for a boat ride? Could you do something better with this time? Yeah, you could. So why are you here? We have to continue to drill down into this question. Is it more biblical? And so there's all that why, even if you don't like this time, maybe if this time seems like a waste of time to you, I think you can actually biblically tell yourself, I think there's biblical grounds for you to not come on a Sunday morning. I'm a pastor. I think there's biblical grounds for you to not come to this space, this place, this setting, and to be a Christian and to say that you're in a church. But there's all these questions that we have to continue to think through. Is it more biblical or simply more beneficial to gather as a large assembly in smaller houses or in smaller and more intimate settings like core groups or core relationships? As a, as a church, we have our large Sunday morning gathering. We have smaller community groups, and, and some people are in core groups or core relationships like one or two or three people that, that really you go deep with. They know your junk. They know your joys. They can help you navigate life. And so 
we have to wrestle with this question, and the church is split over this, especially the church in America. I mean, church leaders and pastors, they'll the argue over mega church, small church, middle-sized church, attractional church, which means everything is put into the Sunday morning. We want to attract people to come to the building at 9 a.m. or 10.45 a.m. to experience God by worshiping among his people. And we're not really going to go all in on small groups. Other churches, they talk about the missional church, which means we just want to scatter. We want to send our people out into the neighborhoods, into their spheres of influence, and we don't want to really worry about gathering. We don't want to spend money on buildings, on programs, on kind of centralizing ministry, and the American church is just divided and split on this. And I find myself pastoring part just kind of in the middle, like, eh, let's just do both and not make a big deal out of either. And we have to think this through, though. What really constitutes a church and what's best for us? Well, here's some facts from these texts that we looked at. The Old Testament word used for, for church or for the assembly, it's, it's yahal or yada. It means to assemble, to congregate, or a convocation. So as we looked at Psalm 149, there's this biblical precedence in the Old Testament for God's people leaving their own spheres of influence, coming together to sing, to hear from him, to, to fellowship with one another, however much you can fellowship with another in a large group. But there's this biblical precedence in the Old Testament to gather large. And then the New Testament word, ecclesia, it means to be called out, the New Testament word for church, called out of the world and into his glorious grace. It means to be called out of a life of sin and into a life of covenant relationship with God through Jesus. But it also intrinsically means to assemble, to gather, to congregate. See, you can't actually have a church if you don't have people who get together. It doesn't matter if it's three or four or 300 or 400 or 3,000 or 4,000. People have different preferences. They have different perspectives. They want it a different way. But the, the reality is that intrinsically in the church, part of what the church is is a people who gather. And, and so you cannot call yourself a Bible-believing, Jesus-following Christian who's a, a part of the universal church if you have no other Christians with whom you gather. Gathering is an intrinsic part of being a follower of Jesus. And here's some comparisons for us to just think through. At Park Community Church, this is kind of how we think through. When we gather on Sunday mornings, it's like a family reunion. How many of you have been to a big family reunion before? Put your hand up nice and high so I know how much I have to explain this. Okay, quite a few of you. I've had some large family reunions in my day and age with like over 50 people, maybe up to 100 people. Is it possible for me to know all of those family members well? To like really go deep with all of them? No. But it's a really fun thing to get together and see all of them and, and see the, the, well, sometimes, right? Family reunions can also be awkward because there's a lot of like unhidden tension. <laughs> right? Some of you know what I'm talking about. You've gone to your family reunions and it's like, I hope Uncle Jim and Uncle Bob don't sit at the same table. They haven't talked to each other for four years, 14 years. And, and that shouldn't be descriptive of the church. But the reality is when you get a large group of people together, relationships just look different, don't they? And so, so that's kind of how we think about Sunday morning here at Park Community Church. It's like a family reunion. Relationships look different. You can't get to know everybody who's sitting in this room deeply and personally and intimately. It just doesn't work. 
And so we, we funnel down into community groups, smaller groups, where you can start to get to know one another deeper, more personally, where you can start to bear one another's burdens. And some of you can't make it to official church community groups. That's, that's fine. The point is to get into smaller relationships with people who can know you, who can care for you, who can pray for you, who can carry your burden. Because we see in the scriptures there's both this call to large gathering, to assemble but there's also this day-to-day in each other's lives, in each other's houses, in each other's spheres of influence, in each other's business. And so we do that as community group. Think about it like a family dinner. I love my family. Well, I have three little kids. I love the concept of family dinner. Um, we do love family dinner, but it can get pretty chaotic at my house and a lot of coaching on finish your meal. I don't care if you don't like that. You need to eat it because you can't have ice cream every night for dinner. You got to eat some carrots. You have to eat some protein. But, but family dinner, it's different than a family reunion, right? It, it's time with the people that you're closer to, being more intimate, more, more connected, and then core relationships, with this, which is just something that we all need, whether it's organized through the church or, or you just have some people. This is a call to all of us who are here. You need to find some people. Build some core relationships, people that you can do like family pillow talk with. See, the point is, when it, what, if, I, if I use my family for an example, when we're here together worshiping, I love having my kids with me in the pew. They'll be here in the second service singing songs. I, I love that fellowship with them, but it's not very deep. And then when we go home, we have, we have family dinner that's a, that's a little bit deeper. It's more intimate. It's more intentional. It's more formative. But then there's this space sometimes. It doesn't always happen, not every night. But there's this space that my kids let me get to where they're getting ready for bed and they have some questions about life. Like, Dad, would, would you come and lay with me? And, and, and don't bring this into all your core relationships unless it's your spouse, but every, every analogy breaks down. But there's this space where my kids are like, Dad, what about this? What about that? This person was mean to me today at school and I, I don't know how to respond. I'm really sad I didn't get this for my birthday. Whatever it is. And there's this, this deeper space. It's a smaller setting with, with sometimes both Brittany and I and all the kids in their room rather than at the table. You know, there's just this different space where things open up and they go deeper. And see, this is really what all of us need. In fact, this is what Jesus modeled for us. He had the crowds. He proclaimed to the crowds. And then he had the disciples, the twelve, this smaller missionary team that he was doing life with. And then even inside of that, he had the three. He had a smaller group of the disciples who he went deeper with. And church, this is what we need. And this is why we exist. We exist to gather into these spaces to help us encourage one another as long as it is called today that we may not be swept away by the deceitfulness of sin. So back to the question, how do we answer the question at Park Community Church? Why do we gather well, we gather, whether it's large or small settings, we do both, we do all three, we really encourage us to gather on Sundays, encourage us to gather in smaller groups throughout the week, and then for you to find some core relationships. We encourage all of that. Why? Regardless of the size, we gather to grow. We gather specifically to grow in our mission and our vision. The mission and vision that God has given us as a church. And yeah, when we gather, we sing. When we gather, there's a sermon. When we gather, we interact with one another. But that's not the reason we gather. That's, that's a byproduct of our gathering. We don't gather to sing. We gather to grow in who God has made us. And a way that we grow in who God has made us is by singing. 
A way that we grow in who God has made us is by opening up his word and looking at it. And so we don't even gather just to sing, just to, to pray, just to preach, just to give money, just to pat one another on the back in the hallway and say, hey, have you gotten a cup of coffee yet? That's so shallow. I mean, it's not shallow. It's authentic here at Park. That's what I love about Park. It's authentic, but it's not enough. It's not sufficient. So we gather in all of our settings to grow in our specific mission, mission and vision as a church. What is our mission? It's to be and make disciples of Jesus. Talked about this last week. That's why we exist as a church. Simply to be and make disciples of Jesus. To follow him. And to make more followers of him. And we have to gather to do that. Again, you can debate the size of the space. But the point is you have to gather with other Christians to be and make a disciple of Jesus. And then our vision as a church is to live as a family of sons and daughters who pursue God, brothers and sisters who practice his commands, and neighbors and witnesses who proclaim his gospel. This is how we see discipleship happening. That we gather on Sundays and in small groups and in personal one-on-one, two-on-two, two-to-three, whatever size relationship you're comfortable with, we gather in all those settings to be reminded of our gospel identity that you've been adopted by God the Father, that you are a son, you are a daughter of God. You get your identity from that, not from the world, not from your own insecurity, not from your absent father or your abusive father or your great earthly father who just has his own faults and flaws. No, you get your identity from the perfect heavenly father who has adopted you as a son or a daughter. That's your identity. And now your activity as a son or a daughter is to pursue God. Because we have a relationship with God, we can pursue him as he pursues us. How do we do that? Through singing, through preaching, through studying his word. That's why we gather. We gather to pursue him by opening this up, by singing songs, by, by getting in relationships with one another. That's why we do what we do. It's an act of our identity. Sons and daughters pursue their father. This is how we pursue our father. Why do we gather? To express our identity as brothers and sisters. God has not left us alone you're not on an island. You're not a Lone Ranger Christian. You can't be. You are a brother or a sister of those around you. And so you gather with those people to practice his commands. Can you practice all of Jesus' commands here and now in an hour and a half on a Sunday morning? No. You can't know one another well enough in this setting to really be hurt by them to have to forgive them. And Jesus tells us to forgive our brothers and our sisters. You can't know one another in this hour and a half well enough to really know one another's needs. And Jesus tells us to, to, to bear one another's burdens. So we scatter into smaller gatherings to be brothers and sisters. And then we also gather as neighbors and witnesses to testify to the world, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to our neighbors. See, sometimes on Sunday mornings, non-believers come in here and when they see us gathered, it's a witness to who Jesus is. And, and when my neighbors see my church people come over to my home, it's a witness to them of who the church is. It gets the church out of the building and it communicates to them that we're a family on mission together. So church, that's why we gather. We gather to grow. That's why you ought to come here. That's why you ought to scatter into groups. That's why you ought to work hard at building friendships with other believers for your growth, for God's glory, for your good and the advancement of his gospel. I want to transition now from talking about why we gather to worshiping Jesus. 
This is, this is why we gather. And when we gather, we take communion at Park Community Church. We take communion together because it's a very practical way for us to express our identity. As sons and daughters pursuing God, we're actually pursuing him by coming to the table. We are walking towards the representation of Christ. The bread is his body broken for us. The cup is his blood shed for us. And so we pursue God. We communicate to one another that we're sons and daughters. We're brothers and sisters practicing his commands. Jesus actually commanded us to take communion. Isn't this amazing? When we gather on Sundays, it's not just tradition. It's not just going through the motions. It's actually growing in our identities. If Jesus said, do this as often as you remember me, if Jesus commanded us to take communion, well, we gather to obey his commands, to practice his commands as his people. And then also, when we, when we gather, when we come to the communion table, we are a witness to the non-believing world around us. And some who come here who are questioning Jesus, who are considering Jesus, we are proclaiming that Jesus really is who he said he was. That he is our substitute. That he took our sin on himself. He overcame sin and death in the grave and gives us a new life. That's what the communion elements remind us of. His body broken for us. His blood shed for us so we can pursue him this morning as children in a family for his glory to be communicated to the world. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are and for what you've done in our place on our behalf. I pray that as we take communion this morning that it would help us grow. Oh, I need to grow so much, Lord Jesus. I need to be reminded of my identity in you and my belonging in this family and my call to be a witness to the world. And I thank you for this chance to do that now through communion. I pray that you would meet each one of us where we're at this morning and lead us to where you desire us to be in your presence, where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. We pray these things in your strong, sufficient, powerful name, Lord Jesus. Amen.